this time, let me call on our third panelist, who is Dan Glickman. And Dan is uh, the executive director of the Aspen Institute Congressional Program. Dan is also an incredibly long and uh, uh, complex CV. Again, I could spend hours reading it, but let's hear from Dan instead. Thank I thought you, you were Dan. saying I was incredibly long and complex. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much. Uh, I see the timers to my right. I can't see it, so if I go for 30 minutes, that's the reason why you didn't put it in front of me. Uh, thanks, uh, Schengen, and thank you for this remarkable report. So I'm going to I'm going to largely talk from a U.S. political perspective because that's been my background as USDA and as a congressman and kind of following the political trends. But I do want to give one brief uh, advertisement for tomorrow, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, which Catherine and I are both involved with, is hosting a symposium. It's going to largely focus on the youth bulge, the massive demographic changes in the world, that uh, we have the largest youth population in history, 80% of the world's 2.3 billion young people, which is under the middle 20s, live in low and middle income countries. Agriculture is the largest employer of these people. In sub-Saharan Africa, 60% of the people are 25 years and younger. This creates enormous opportunities and enormous security risks for destabilization. And I just wanted to talk, I'm not going to go into much more detail than that, but that is something that is, is, has got to be dealt with from a policy perspective. So I just want to mention a few things from the U.S. policy perspective. Uh, what's happening in the United States with President Trump's uh, tariffs on steel and aluminum and perhaps and possibly announced uh, China uh, tariffs, which we don't know yet, Washington Post this morning, I think does reflect <coughs> a global trend against globalization, and I'm surprised that the political forces that for years fought for free trade, their voices, they're either hoarse or have a cold or can't talk, because you're not hearing a lot of diverse debate in this country and elsewhere with leaders of the world who see uh, the world's trading perspective as different than it used to be. The, there are three major industries that will be impacted by this, a lot of sub-industries. Agriculture, the biggest. Aviation, the second biggest. And entertainment, the third biggest. Because these are the three industries that tend to move around the world uh, with um, uh, not a lot of restrictions. And you put restrictions on those, it is it is trouble city in, in farm country and the other places as well. I notice there's an ad running now by a farmer, I think in Montana, a soybean farmer who's worried about this particular problem. No question if we... Uh, put uh, tariff restrictions on China. Um, it has grave implications on um, uh, the ability of us to sell our product into that market. I, we don't know what it will mean yet. Uh, and it, as the president talks about, he likes trade wars. I'm thinking to myself, I don't like wars, and I don't like trade wars. And I'm from the Teddy Roosevelt School, speak softly and carry a big stick. And this big stick talk is not helpful to getting people to work together to resolve their differences. So I would just make that particular point. I would have to say on the research side, I think you've done a great job on that. The biggest issue I see on that is water. The UN came out with a report yesterday. UNESCO said that by the year 2050, we could have 5 billion people facing water shortages. You see what's happened in South Africa. 70% of the water that's used in this world is to irrigate crops. 30% is used for everything else, drinking, industrial use. 
And this uh, has an incredibly significant impact on the ability to produce food. That's why Congress created something called the Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research, which I've been a part of, which is focusing on things like water utilization, photosynthesis, how to grow crops with less water, other kinds of things. I think that's the biggest research challenge, quite frankly, certainly uh, for agriculture. Let me talk for a moment about the U.S. Farm Bill and U.S. Farm Policy. So we're in a period of lower uh, commodity prices. We've been in that period for a Oh, a couple years now, you know, we went through this period of very high prices, and the old theory is what ends high prices, but high prices. So now we have lower prices, which means coupled with the kind of anti-globalist rhetoric, which means politicians in countries all over the world, including the United States, are going to want to protect domestic farmers. That's kind of the natural order of life. We'll see what happens in this farm bill, which may happen this year. Uh, I hope it does. Our, the, our farm bill has tended to focus more on risk management and crop insurance than on direct subsidies, but there are a lot of farmers who are hurting right now, and we could see some reversion back to old policies. And um, uh, so I think that is something we have to look at. We also have to look at America's role in the world. Um, Congress has been very good on a bipartisan basis in ensuring that uh, our commitments to humanitarian assistance uh, and it, it maintain themselves. And there's been a lot of talk about food aid reform. And I tell you, this is the one thing where I've seen Congress really step up to the plate to deal with America's role in feeding. We provide about 40 to 50 percent of the of the of the money and commodities that go to the World Food Program, which Catherine uh, ran, and we, we see cr uh, refugee crisis and humanitarian crisis greater than we've seen in a very long time. Uh, certainly since the Second World War. I want to want to mention one other thing, and that's a country that's not ever mentioned anywhere. We talk about Syria. We talk about Yemen. We've got a country in our own hemisphere that has as many refugees as Syria does. It's called Venezuela. Venezuela had 28 million people uh, 10 years ago. They're down to 24 million people. Uh, the rich have gone to Miami and Spain. Everybody else has gone to Colombia, Peru, Brazil. And um, it has, uh, and the country has 20,000% inflation rate. Imagine that. Um, it has people, uh, 10,000 kids under the age of one died last year. The, the, the Syrian refugee problem is monumental. It's gotten a huge amount of attention. The Venezuelan refugee problem has pretty much been absent from the political and, and substantive debate. And yet it has enormous implications, not only from this hemisphere, from destabilization and narcotics, but from the rest of the world. And I only mention that because these problems, uh, humanitarian issues, and by the way, they don't take any UN assistance for all practical purposes. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a country with governance that's just missing in action. There is no governance in the country. And where there is no governance, as you have talked about, the people perish, basically. It's, it's an impossible situation. So I just add that point because I think it's something that here we are in our hemisphere, and I know there are people from all over the world here, but in our hemisphere, we have a country with a refugee problem that's in, in, in aggregate terms is just as bad as the problem in the Middle East. And we need to talk about it. Thank you very much. Dan, thank you so much. Thank you for raising the key issues to also, with your last uh, point, raise uh, shed light or shine light rather on the uh, 
uh, issues of Venezuela and its uh, refugee problems, but also for raising the uh, U.S. domestic uh, policy issues and their implications.